Father, thank you for our time this morning of singing as we consider and are encouraged by the gospel, uh, even as it's put to words or as it's put to music. We're grateful for that. Help us now to have clear minds. Help us to continue worshiping you even now as we're called to worship you with our minds. We would ask that the Spirit of God would bring illumination, bring light to our minds as well as we consider what you would have for us from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. The question this morning that I would like you to ask yourself to get things started is, who am I? Who am I? Not in the sense of where you live, what you do for a living, who your relatives are, who your friends are, but more basically, more foundationally, if you like, more philosophically. Who am I? Who am I as a, as a human being? Consider that. If you can answer the question, who am I, and answer it appropriately, you have the answer to so many questions. It unlocks and guides you in an amazing, amazing way. I would suggest to you, you need to be able to answer the question, who am I? This is one of those questions that people have been asking for millennia. Plato has an answer. Sartre has an answer. Freud has an answer. Camus has an answer. Foucault has an answer. And on the list goes. But the one thing those individuals that I just listed have in common, though they have different answers, each one of them, the one thing they have in common is they've refused to listen to divine revelation. Thus the different answers. Thus the different answers to other questions in life. What we would would do this morning, what I would like us to do, is to be very different from those philosophers, those thinkers, those theologians, and open our Bibles and seek to answer the question, who am I? Who am I? And listen to what God, the creator of the universe, has said. And so that will be what we'll seek to do this morning and in the next few weeks, answering the question, who am I? A biblical view of self, not to be self-centered ultimately, but to understand who we are. And then what we'll do, Lord willing, is we'll start our study in the gospel according to Luke. And I'm eager and anxious about that. I hope you are as well. Uh, I'm calling it the gospel of certainty based upon what's said in chapter 1, where Dr. Luke is giving a detailed account of Jesus and his life and his death, his resurrection, his ascension. And he gives the details so much so, so that we might, as the listener, as the reader, have certainty about who he is. And so that's where we'll be headed, uh, kicking things off in the fall. But for the next few weeks, to consider who we are as human beings. Because if we can answer that question truly, appropriately, you will be equipped to answer lots of questions in life. So there'll be a quiz afterward, especially for my kids. And so plan to ride in the car with me. And uh, anybody else who wants to ride in the car with me, there's room. I have a pickup truck. We can roll the window down in the back. And uh, 
It's just important that we deal with this issue. When we talk about implications of it, you'll see how important it is. Uh, if you need to hang your thoughts on something, let's have, we'll do five questions, um, starting with some real basic, basic ground-level questions, and then getting into some application as we go. So I'm thinking I'm going to have my thoughts based upon, uh, around five questions. Uh, and in, in particular, this morning, we're only going to look at, at the fact that we've been created, and we've been created in the image of God. So we won't make it very far in giving, giving the answer. Uh, there's only going to be one point, but five questions surrounding the one point. Uh, because, by the way, when you look at your Bible and you start in Genesis and you say, who am I? It's a pretty detailed answer. Um, starting with, I'm a created being in the image of God, but then all of a sudden, I mean, here's my, here's my preview list of what we might look at in the days ahead. I'm a spiritual and physical being. I am a sinner. I am a saint. I am redeemed. I am wicked-hearted. Uh, but being renewed, I am a worshiper, whether I'm a Christian or not a Christian. I am spiritually dead apart from Christ. I am righteous in the eyes of God if I am a Christian. I am sanctified. I am being sanctified. I am glorified. I will be glorified, including physical. I am a son of God, whether I'm a man or a woman, and on the list goes. The Bible has a lot to say about who we are. But foundationally, You've got to start with, I am a created being, created in the image of God. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. So if you want to get the quiz right, at least first question, who am I? Who are we as human beings? We are created, created beings. We are creatures who have been made in the image of God, and that has huge ramifications. Question number one, where does the Bible teach this? And we'll look at Genesis chapter 1. Let's go ahead and see that the Bible teaches this in Genesis chapter 1. I know this is super basic. But we've got to start with the text and we've got to start seeing it ourselves. It makes us different from everyone else, everything else. Genesis one twenty six. Go ahead and look there with me if you would. And in Genesis one twenty six, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Then verse 27 of Genesis 1. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So there's where the Bible teaches it. You could also write down chapter 5, verses 1 to 3. We won't go there, but it would reiterate what we've just seen. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. You can jot that down. We're going to go there later. It's a very important passage when it comes to implications. New Testament, James chapter 3. We'll go there later as well. So we see it in the New Testament also. But then I would also like you to actually turn to Psalm 8. Psalm 8 also teaches that we're made in the image of God. Psalm 8 would be roughly in the middle of your Bible in case you're new and you need a little help. Uh, the Psalms are roughly in the middle. And we'll turn to Psalm 8. As you're turning there, I'll set it up a little bit. Here's the psalmist, and, and, and the psalms are there for, for worship. Uh, and, and he's worshiping God. He's amazed by God's great, vast, amazing, big creation. And he's worshiping Him for this great creation. And it's even puzzling, if not mind-blowing, that God made human beings unique, special in God's image. 
especially in light of how big creation is. Let's go ahead and look at verse 3. When I look at your heavens, he says to God, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? It's like a startling kind of question. And the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and and crowned him with glory and honor. Verse 6, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Sound familiar? Sounds kind of Genesis 1-ish, right? On purpose. And so we see the Bible does teach that we've been made in the image of God. And, and, and we're going to talk about what that means in a moment, but I just can't help myself and at least point out what I think is obvious, but maybe isn't obvious. It's important to notice that if the psalmist didn't have divine revelation, special revelation, Genesis 1 revelation, he probably would have never come to the conclusion he does in Psalm 8. He's startled. Look, look, look at the stars. Look how amazing the creation is. It's so vast. It's so huge. What is man in comparison to this creation? And yet you've crowned him with glory and honor. And you've given him dominion over everything. There's a big lesson to be learned there. I know we're just supposed to see it's in the Bible right now, but I can't help myself. The big lesson is, apart from having special revelation to interpret the creation, to interpret reality, you won't come to the right conclusions. The reason the psalmist is coming to the right conclusion about creation is because he's paying attention to his Bible. You see why why that's important? Because we live in this world and we try to figure things out, like all those philosophers try to figure out, who am I? And they come to wrong conclusions again and again and again and again and again and again because they don't have a Bible open. The psalmist has a Bible open and he says, I, I, I wouldn't have come to this conclusion because I see the stars and I see how big everything is and I see how massive the universe is. And Oh, but I remember and I know that you've made me in your image, giving humans dominion over everything. It's important. Now let's come to another question. So the Bible teaches it in Genesis 1, Genesis 5, Genesis 9, James 3, Psalm 8. Next question is, what what does it mean? What what does it mean to be made in the image of God? What does it mean to be made in the image of God? And if I can give you some multiple answers, I think it will be most helpful. Most basic, let me just, you know, this is like bringing ice to Eskimos, I know. But most basic, if you're made in the image of God, it means you're something like God. Let us make man in our image. The Trinitarian hour. There's something about you. If you look in the mirror and you say, who am I? There's something about you that's like God. Now that's a dangerous statement, I realize, but that's reality. Let's answer it a little bit further. It means that you've been given godlike responsibilities. Dominion over, right? Dominion over, sovereignty over, um, responsibility over. 
That's what that's true of God. Genesis chapter one, verse 26. Again, he says, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. That's very Godish. That's very Godlike. God is the Lord. He's the sovereign. And here he says, let's give them sovereignty. So we have capital S sovereignty and we have lower S sovereignty. We're the little sovereigns, if you will. But there's something about us. We've been made in the image of God, and that means we have responsibilities that correspond. One of the responsibilities we have dominion over. We have a stewardship. And by the way, oftentimes when you're you're looking at an ancient world, an ancient culture, the one who is the Lord, the one who is the sovereign, now sometimes they would use that for bad, but they had responsibility to take care of. So I don't mind mentioning that here either. If, we, if we're made in the image of God, it means we, we have God-like responsibilities, including dominion over. We have responsibility for. Especially in light of the fact, this is important because we're not, dominion is not just some, you know, just trash it kind of thing. Remember, in the context of Genesis 1, God creates everything, and how does he create it? Good. God's good creation, he has his image bearers having dominion over it. That, that right there is more than assuming good responsibility. What does, it mean, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? I would also want to say something about creation. God creates all of these things, and He makes human beings in His image. I realize now we're teasing it out a little bit more, but I'm going to connect the dots and saying, we're creators. We make things, not the same way God does, but we make things like no other created beings make things. Human beings make amazing things. How is this to be true? How could this be? It's evidence. It's evidence that we're different. It's evidence that we're made in the image of God who is the creator. Also, if I'm going to try to answer the question, what is meant by being made in the image of God? I'm going to say it means we have a unique relationship with God that no other created thing has. If you're made in the image of God, you're not like any of the animals. You're not like any of the trees or the plants. You're not like any of the fish. You and you alone, and as Genesis goes on to talk about and develop this, you and you alone have a unique relationship to God, unlike the other created beings. doesn't mean they don't have any relationship, but you have a unique relationship, and we see this developed as it goes. Human beings uniquely relate to God because they're image bearers, and we'll talk about implications of that later. And then finally, and I realize this is, this is the stuff whole books are written about and uh, we could only be talking about this. But for the sake of time, finally, it's important when we're having this, I realize, kind of philosophical conversation. We're, we're not to the application yet, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to come. It's important when we consider what does it mean made to be made in the image of God? It's important that we consider Jesus. Getting ahead of myself. But we see Adam and Eve made in the image of God and we see the wheels come off. And we see sin and we see a world ravaged by sin. 
we see pollution and corruption of the image, if you will. But then we see Jesus, who's called, by the way, the last Adam. He's the one who will bring many sons to glory. He's the exact image of God, and then he leads in resurrection. And we're going to look at a couple of those passages later, but I have to bring it up for now. If you really want to know image of God and, and how it looks in its perfected state, its ultimate state, you've got to look to Christ. That's what it's supposed to be like, to be made in the image of God. It's more, more than just not like the animals. Ultimately, we've got to go to Christ, and we'll go there at the end today before we celebrate the Lord's Supper. One more on the uh, kind of heady level before we get to application, and that would be this question. What is not meant by it? What is not meant by it? I said earlier, to be made in the image of God, duh, obvious, read the passages, would be the, you, you're something like God. Well, that's like, you know, in the, in the danger zone. Take shelter. Be careful. If you know anything about the Bible, you're, you're playing with fire, buddy. To say you're like God, that, that's like a syllable away from being in a lot of trouble. What it doesn't mean is that you are God. What it doesn't mean is that you're a peer of God. What it doesn't mean This is wrong, but I have to say it this way. I'll I'll scratch that. This is right. It doesn't mean that you are essentially like God. It doesn't mean that you're essentially, the very essence of your being, like God and the essence of His being. Why would we say that? Why do we need to be really careful here? The Bible says we're like God. We're made in the image of God. Well, there's so much that the Bible says about God being the one and only true God who has always been God from everlasting to everlasting that you are God. There are no other gods. And the Bible is so pronounced about that. If you turn to Isaiah 45, it'd be a great place to look. It's so pronounced that we have to guard the uniqueness of God. And so then what we'll do is say, We're made in the image of God. We're something like God, but in another sense, we're nothing like God because we're created beings. So I realize that this is taking some time to develop and and I want it to take some time because we're thinking about something really, really, really important and God really, 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 really cares that you understand that there's only one God and you're not it. And, 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 and your resemblance to God isn't even close to the same zip code as God's, okay? In fact, we might want to work this way. There's a sense in which you're like God, but there's no sense in which God is like you. Might be a good way to put it. We argue one way, but not the other way. Look, look with me, if you would, just to get an idea of this in Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45, verse 5. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. Verse 6. That people may know from the rising of the sun from, and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things things. 
really straightforward, really clear, and this is just a sampling of what we would get from Isaiah. Exodus 3.14, you know this passage probably if you've been a Christian longer than about five days. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. It's a statement of, of, of independence. It's a, say, uh, a statement of total uniqueness. It's what the old writers would call God's aseity. That God is ase from himself. And you say, can you illustrate that for me? No, that's the point. He breaks all the boundaries, all the categories. He's independent. He and he alone is God. There, there's no point of correspondence. And so we have to ask the question, what is not meant by you're made in the image of God? What is not meant is that you are essentially the same as God because no one is essentially the same as God because there's only one God. He doesn't need anything. He is independent. He says things like, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And I can't explain that to you. There's no category. But here God comes and says, let us make man in our image. We can say, okay, this is a tough one to try to figure out. Essentially, we're not the same. But in some sense, we're the same. So how are we the same? Well, we're uniquely related to him. We're creators in another, in a lowercase c sense. We're sovereigns in a lowercase s sense. We have dominion over in a lowercase d sense. We are very, very unique from all the rest of creation. And at least we're on safe ground when we talk in those terms. He's not our peer. He doesn't need us. Now, here's where I've been driving. Question number four. So what? Good job, by the way, for hanging in there. Some of you thrive on the other questions. So what? What are the implications? What are, what are, what's the application? And this is where I wasn't lying when I said at the beginning, if you can answer the question appropriately, truly, who am I? If you can answer that appropriately, you can answer lots of questions. The implications, the ramifications are huge. I want you to be able to answer these questions. I want you to be able to deal with the questions of life, the questions of ethics, the big, the big questions that relate to this bigger question. I want my kids to be able to. I want your kids to be able to if you have them. I want my friends to be clearly thinking about, okay, I'm made in the image of God. That's who I am most basically. And that reality has consequences. I like that line. I think it's from R.C. Sproul. I think he might have even written a book called Ideas Have Consequences. Yeah. Ideas have consequences. If you believe you're made in the image of God, there will be consequences. Appropriate 
If you don't believe that human beings are made in the image of God, there will be consequences. Dastardly consequences. One implication is that I'm accountable as a creature. I'm accountable as a creature. If I'm made in the image of God, if I'm created in the image of God, that means I'm answerable to God. I'm uniquely answerable to God. The whole creation, we could say, is answerable to God, but I'm uniquely answerable to God because I've been made, not only have I been made, I've been made in His image, according to His likeness, given responsibilities of dominion and so forth. And so, so I, I, I'm, I'm not the captain of my own universe, and neither are you. When you look in the mirror and say, Who am I? Don't answer, don't you dare answer, I'm independent. Don't you dare come to the conclusion, I can do whatever I want to do. You're not free. Not ultimate free to do whatever you want to do. You're accountable. I'm accountable. Because we're created and we're created in the image of God. I'm under someone. If you turn to Acts 17, you'll find some good support for dependence because of creation in the image of God. And as you're turning to Acts 17, I'm going to read Nehemiah 9.6, which is also relevant. But I'll have you just look up one of these. As you're turning there, let, let me put it, let me bring it real close to home. You're totally dependent upon God for everything. Because you're a creature. Let, let me bring it to home where you're sitting right now. Your next breath that you're going to take is completely dependent upon God, not your good cardio. If you're here and you're an unbeliever, and, and you're hating every second of any God talk about being made in the image of God and I don't like this and I don't buy this, the fact that you're even alive another second to hate everything you're hearing is evidence of the fact that God has been merciful to you. That's what Nehemiah is going to have us to know. That's what Acts 17 would have us to know because you're a created being. Nehemiah 9.6 says, and then we'll get to Acts 17, you are the Lord, you alone. Notice that there's this uniqueness, independence. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it. So that's going to include us. That's going to include everyone, everything. The seas and all that is in them. And then here's the punchline of verse 6. And you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. God preserves it all to the point where we are all dependent. And so implication of being created, implication of being created in the image of God, mirror, mirror on the wall, who am I? I'm dependent, not sovereign. That's humbling. How about Acts 17? Acts 17, verse 24. Paul speaking to unbelievers. 
And he says in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made with made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. How about that in verse 25? Let me rock your world and all your idols. Let me tell you about the one true God, the very fact that you have a heartbeat right now. It's because God gave it to you. You're a created being. Huge implication. How about the end in there? How about verse 28? In him we live and move and have our being. He's just elaborating on what he said in verse 25. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. They didn't say made in the image of God, but they said it a different way. Even a stop clock is right twice a day. They were on to something. <laughs> this is so helpful for, for me and for you because we, we slip into thinking we're captains of our own universe. We can do whatever we want to do. We're independent. That's why we need to recover the biblical doctrine of being made in the image of God. Emphasis on being made creatures. Creatures. It will bring humility. It will bring uh, a responsibility. Hopefully it brings worship and praise. How about another point of application or another implication? Still on this question number four. Helps me to know that I'm unique as a human being. I'm unique as a human being. Animals are not my peers. And neither are plants. I love my dog. Not the way I love my daughter. Love my dog, but not the way I love my dad. I love, I'm not of these, I can't keep it going. Um, my dear wife. <laughs> that was bad. <laughs> this is a no brainer, right? It's a no brainer in this room. But it's not a no brainer. Ideas have consequences. If you don't believe that human beings are uniquely made in the image of God, it's amazing the conclusions you'll come to. Switzerland amended its constitution to require that the dignity of creation must be taken into account when handling animals, plants, and other organisms. Now the Wall Street Journal reports that the guidelines set down by the committee are complicating life for scientists. Unfortunately, we have to take it seriously, said Beat Keller of the University of Zurich. He was referring to the mandate that scientists take account of a plant's, quote, dignity before conducting any experiment. As the paper reports, several years ago, when Christoph Sauter, a botanist at Switzerland's Federal Institute of Technology, failed to get permission to do a local field trial on transgenetic wheat, he moved the experiment to the U.S., so they told him, no, you can't do the experiment on this wheat for ethical reasons. You can't do the experiment on the wheat. He's too embarrassed, it says, to mention the new dignity rule to his American colleagues. Quote, they'll think Swiss people are crazy, he says. Ideas have consequences. The fact, by the way, that anybody thinks that the Swiss are crazy before that, comes from a biblical worldview. 
even if people don't believe the Bible is true. It's the hungover uh, uh, after effects of those who've gone before who had a biblical worldview. Ideas have consequences. We're not going to take the time to go there because we'll run out of time. But my, my next note that I make is Romans 1. Romans 1. If I don't see my fellow human being as uniquely created in the image of God and instead start seeing wheat as equal in dignity or animals in equal in dignity, I'm turning everything on its head. I'm refusing to listen to what God has to say ultimately about himself and his creation. And when we do that, Romans chapter 1 says the consequence will be that God will give us over to our lustful passions. When we no longer think about God the way he's revealed himself and we think about creation in an elevated sense the way God has never spoken, it brings the judgment of God. What's so interesting about Romans chapter 1 is it goes on to say that the judgment of God is that God will give human beings over to their lustful passions and men will be with men and women will be with women. Please notice this. Look it up this afternoon. Romans chapter 1 does not say men with men, women with women will bring the judgment of God. It says that it is the judgment of God. The fundamental problem, first and foremost, not that that couldn't bring the judgment of God, by the way, the fundamental problem is we refuse to treat God as He's revealed Himself and we refuse to see the creation as God has explained it. It's very, very, very interesting. So what they're experiencing, what we're experiencing, is not going to bring the judgment of God. It's evidence of the judgment of God. Because for years now, we've been saying things like, to me, God is. To me, God is. And we've been seeing human beings as other than God has said they are. Ideas have consequences. Ideas have consequences. Another implication or point of application. If this is true, I'm to treat other humans with respect. I'm to see you as unique and respectable as an image bearer. This becomes huge. This is huge. I'm not the only one made in the image of God. God help us if any of us think that. Human beings made in the image of God. So now I'm supposed to treat you a certain way. You're, you're a divine image bearer. You're, you're different than a plant. You're different than an animal. This has huge, huge ramifications. You, no one could tell me on this day that theology is not practical. Our understanding of God and His creation is tremendously practical. This is, this is where loving your neighbor comes from. Ultimately, loving your neighbor is something Christians are supposed to do, but it's something everyone is supposed to do. It's just part of the divine law that everyone is under. And it makes total sense that God would tell people to love their neighbor because, after all, we're divine image bearers. 
We're unique. Oh, yes, we have stewardship over the animals and over the other part of creation, but we're called to love in a sacrificial way human beings because they're image bearers. There's a certain kind of dignity to humankind that's right and needs to be there. It's very, very crucial that we see this, and it comes from the reality of Genesis chapter 1, to be quite frank. This is why there's a huge difference between Killing a chicken, we call it slaughtering. And murdering a human being. Killing, killing. Slaughtering, murdering. The chicken's not made in the image of God. How many of you have slaughtered a chicken before? There's a few. I remember my mom, man, she would take the chicken by the neck and go, Done. You know, anyway, why are we talking about this? I don't know. She used to also put their head under the wing and she would rock them to sleep and she would line them up. See how many she could get to sleep at the same time. I kid you not. Anyway, what does that have to do with the Bible? I have no idea. Um, A little comic relief and a little seriousness here. Tell me this isn't practical. Tell me this isn't practical when your family is being taught and told that there is no difference. And they'll more than likely be told that even more that there is no difference. Please don't misunderstand. Dominion over brings responsibility and we should be responsible with the creation. But not in the same sense we should be responsible with fellow image bearers. They bear the image of God. Now I would like you to turn to Genesis chapter 9, verse 6 with me because it becomes very, very crucial that we see the connection even to the very thing we're talking about here. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6 is another image of God passage. I mentioned it earlier. We didn't turn there, but, but it's one you want to write down and one you want to be familiar with. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, it says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Notice why. For God made man in his own image. You see why that's important? There is something unique about human beings and that something is we've made made in the image of God and God is so serious about it. He says, if the blood is shed, that person's blood should be shed. He doesn't say that about animals. He doesn't say that about animals and he most certainly doesn't say that about wheat or plants. Now, we're not going to get into this. It would be a whole other kind of sermon. But just for clarity's sake, the New Testament would teach this as well in a different wording, Romans chapter 13. And do notice that in Romans chapter 13, it's tied to the governing authorities, not to individuals. So if someone commits murder, don't you dare go kill them in light of Genesis 9, 6, because you need to read Romans 13. It's to be done under governing authorities that God honors and respects, not by human beings, because then you end up taking vengeance in your own hands. I just need to say that ethically. Okay? But what I want to see and have you see for our sake right now is there is a fundamental difference between animals, plants, and human beings. 
So when you look in the mirror and you say, who am I? Made in the image of God. And then you put the mirror down and you look at somebody else and you say, who are they? Made in the image of God. Therefore, treat them with dignity. Treat them with respect. This isn't just a Christian thing either, by the way. We should treat each other with dignity and respect. I mean, contrary to popular opinion, you know, we're made in the image of God too. Um, The reality is, the guy at the Burger King or the McDonald's or the guy who takes your trash out or the person who's filing suit against you or whatever it might be, you name it, you at least need to know that they're made in the image of God. There's practical relevance here. In a major way, there's practical relevance here. They're not just an animal. This is why abortion is wrong. This is why killing old people because they're in the way now is wrong. This is why genocide is wrong. This is why killing people that don't look like you is wrong. This is why killing people who don't believe the same thing as you is wrong. The Christian worldview won't tolerate it. Fundamentally, most basically, it can't. By the way, don't misunderstand. I'll tell someone with a different religious belief that they're wrong. I'll call them to repentance. I'm called to do that. So are you. I will call them and and urge them to trust in Christ as their only hope. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. But I will also know that they're made in the image of God. And I need to respect them as a human being because they're made in the image of God, even though they're using that gift even against God. You see? It's important. If you would just listen, because we're needing to bring things to a a close sooner than later, listen to James chapter 3, if you would. James chapter 3 is also practical relevance of me treating others with dignity. James 3.9 says, talking about the tongue, our language, with it we bless our, our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. And he says, it shouldn't be this way. So here he is again, he's drawing upon the image of God, and he's saying, you know, the way you guys talk to each other, it shouldn't be this way. Now we could say, it shouldn't be this way because we're brothers in Christ and sisters in Christ shouldn't be this way because we want to have a good testimony to unbelievers and, and, and we, we, don't want to, we don't want to do that. But it shouldn't be this way even more fundamentally because you're talking to a fellow human being. Go talk to your dog that way when it disobeys or not. But it's outrageous that we talk to each other the way we talk to each other. Made in the image of God. James draws on that. It's very practical. One more point of practical relevance and then we'll answer one more question. I'm, because I know people are made in the image of God, I'm able to give God glory for good things that are done even by unbelievers. And I know I have to clarify that. So for those of you who are very theologically astute, calm down. Um, I'll clarify. If I see people, human beings, unbelievers in particular, doing things that are good, 
I can see the image of God there and I can say, God, you made us in your image. Isn't this amazing? And give him glory. The clarification comes with the word good. Uh, quote, unquote, good. Relative good. Because I know Romans chapter 3 says no one does good. No, not one. But it's talking about good, ultimate good, pleasing God, saving kind of good. There's no, that's not happening because of motives and all of that. But there's, there's lowercase g good. There's relative good. There's acts of philanthropy. General acts of kindness. Mathematicians who are unbelievers do amazing things. I hate them for it because I don't like math. Anyway, (laughs) but you get the point anyway. Playwrights who are unbelievers produce amazing works of art. People people who make movies who are are unbelievers make amazing movies sometimes. Literature, science, everyone in this room, no doubt everyone in this room can be thankful for developments when it comes to, to biology and science. Some of you would not be alive right now because of what unbelievers have done and helped you physically. What's your category for that? Nothing. Your category for that is they've been made in the image of God. Isn't this amazing that that unbelievers do this? Sometimes even with with the ultimate in bad motives because they're they're God-haters sometimes, outright. And yet great things happen and you can say, even though something horrible in this world has happened when it comes to sin, I still see God's common grace and I still see something of people being made in the image of God. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. I don't think you're really going to have a category for that if you don't think about everyone being made in the image of God. But we are. And so we have a category for that. Finally, what happened? Is my last question. What happened to the image of God? What's the deal? And this is something we have to look at really quickly. Most of you know what happened. Adam and Eve made in the image of God. Adam is our representative. Romans chapter 5 teaches 1 Corinthians 15 teaches. He leads the human race into sin, into rebellion. He, the image bearer, and something awful happens and something awful has been happening ever since Adam and Eve. What has happened is the image of God has been marred. The image of God has been twisted. The image of God has been perverted. The image of God has been corrupted i'm looking for different synonyms but one thing i'm being careful not to do is say the image of god is gone because it's still there i know it's still there you do too because you just read genesis 9 6 genesis between genesis 1 and genesis 9 you got a whole lot of sinning you 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 have adam you know, doing a belly flop <laughs> as, our, as our representative and crashing and burning. And yet still, after Adam does that, after plenty of sinning going on in Genesis chapter 9, human beings are still described as being made in the image of God. What happened? Sin happened. But it didn't entirely remove it from us, thanks be to God. And here's where we are now. We're waiting for it to be perfected. 
restored and better yet perfected. It was good with Adam. And now it's marred. And it's going to be better than restored, better than good. It's going to be perfected because the Lord Jesus Christ passed all the tests that the first Adam didn't pass. And he's the ultimate in image of God-ness, if you will, as a true human being. He was fully God and fully man, but as a one who is fully man, he is the perfect image bearer. And here's where it gets exciting. Because Christians are united to Christ by faith, we're promised glorification. We're promised perfection. Christ raised from the dead as the firstborn. That's assuming there's going to be more who come after him. One day, if you're a Christian, you will enter into the fullness of what it means, to the perfection of what it means to be a divine image bearer. And if you want a preview of what that looks like, you look to Christ and you look to Christ and you look to Christ. Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Romans 8.29 and 30 says, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed, that's kind of our language, conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. He also perfected. It's, it's the promise that we have where everything will be made right and it's everything made right by Christ. And so it's our Christian hope. And with that, I'll invite you to pray with me. Father, thank you for our time this morning. Thank you for opportunities like this to consider something of great importance that has huge ramifications in the way that we think and the way that we live, the way that we lead our families, those of us who have families. Help us as we walk out of this building this morning, even before we walk out of this building, help us to see ourselves appropriately, help us to see the people around us appropriately, help us to see our enemies appropriately. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who brings forgiveness and brings reconciliation when we don't see ourselves and we don't see others properly. But may that be no excuse. All the more, those of us who are trusting in Him, may we find ourselves acting appropriately because we're Christians, because we're in Christ. And Lord, now as we take bread and as we drink wine, as Jesus said, to remember His perfect work on our behalf, may we be thinking of Him as the perfect one whose work is done. Redemption has been accomplished. We're secure in Him. And may we long for that day, even as we eat and as we drink, may we long for that day when we find ourselves entering into perfection, where we perfectly have the privilege of being image bearers. In Jesus' name, amen.